Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late El Emanuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. Over the years, many men and women were sent to Newfoundland and Labrador to promote one Christian denomination or another. One who fascinated El Emanuel was Julian Morton, who pitched up as a Church of England missionary in the mid-19th century. Here she recalls something of his 13 years spent along the shores of northern Bonavista Bay as a Church of England missionary. His 1863 memoir, Life and Work in Newfoundland, Reminiscences of 13 Years Spent There, describes life in the scattered and thinly populated northeastern corner of Newfoundland. Here, El Emanuel travels back in time and out from Green's Pond with Julian Morton. Now, the island of Green's Pond in northern Bonavista Bay had for some 150 years been a thriving community by the time the young Reverend Julian Morton arrived in 1849. In fact, my own ancestor, John Manuel, lived there on a piece of land granted by the Crown in 1732. All along Bonavesta Bay and the Strait Shore there were settlers, mainly of West Country origin, and there was much toing and froing back and forth to England. Morton found in Green's Pond a neat village, a good church, a resident justice of the peace, and a customs officer. For the previous twenty years the village had had a school and a permanent teacher, as opposed to other settlements served by itinerants who spent a few months here and there. Morton's mission, the largest in Newfoundland at the time, stretched along some 70 miles of coast from Bloody Bay to Deadman's Bay, names enough to give any newcomer a chilly feeling. It included 23 settlements with 3,700 people, of whom 86% were of my own flock. Now, Green's Pond seemed quite a law-abiding, respectable place, though later it apparently fell on hard times. According to one historian, moral conditions left much to be desired. Drinking, swearing, and adultery were rife. Indeed, as late as 1866, a Wesleyan parson described Green's Pond as Sodom and Gomorrah of the North. But though, during Morton's time, it was a prosperous community, the outlying districts mirrored the times more accurately. If their stories had been written then, they'd have sounded pretty much the same. Their water generally came from the bogs or from rocky hollows after rains, and people considered themselves fortunate if in summer an iceberg grounded nearby, for melted water was much valued. A bucketful of this arctic water was often sent to the clergyman by some poor neighbor and was counted no mean gift. Now Morton was always taken aback when men would enter your house unmasked to light their pipes at your kitchen fire and perhaps to sit down and smoke and spit. Once Mrs. Morton was surprised by a man thus entering her parlour, where she was sitting alone. He said nothing, but coolly lit his pipe at the fire, then walked out again smoking it, without so much as a word. Morton wrote extensively about the bitter cold of winter, and how it affected, and sometimes killed, settlers. Listen to him telling about trying to sleep in the bitter cold. 
A remedy which I sometimes used and always found effectual was to rise from bed and run twice or thrice with bare feet on the still colder floor. This excites circulation and soon a glow of warmth is felt which enables you to sleep. I believe now what I have often heard, that old people whose circulation is bad often suffer frostbite in bed. When writing, the ink would freeze in his pen so quickly that every few lines Morton had to stop and hold his pen in front of the fire to thaw it out. As to their food supplies, I suppose it didn't matter very much if salt cod froze, and a carcass of meat kept much better frozen anyway. Vegetables such as they had went in earth cellars with four-foot-thick walls, but iced up the moment they were taken out. Milk froze so commonly that they used to put it on the table in a solid chunk to be sliced and slid into one's cup. And if you had the misfortune to spill your tea, it would freeze in the saucer, and you'd lift up cup and saucer together. And bread? Well, you couldn't put this in the earth cellar, because it would soon go moldy. One stormy day, when Morton was visiting one of his stations, he was invited to take some tea before setting out on his journey. And while his hostess was cutting the bread and butter, she complained how difficult it was to keep the bread from freezing. So I always put the loaf into the bed and wrap it up close the minute the boys turn out. Rather horrified at the thought, he later discovered that in Greenspond his own maid always wrapped the bread up and put it at the foot of her bed for the night. Schools were few and far between, so how could people learn to read and write? Of the three hundred and so people married in Morton's parish between 1849 and 1856, only forty-nine could sign their names. Morton asked one man if he could read and write, and he said, No, I'm thankful to say, else I would be as big a rogue as damned it can. Another man witnessed to a marriage, whom Morton had asked to sign the registered, replied, "'No, your worship, I can't write. "'I got to trust others, like most poor fellows. "'But I suppose there will always be some smart enough "'to live alongside their neighbours and do nothing for their bread.' "'But they didn't all think that way. "'At Swain's Island, about four miles off the mainland, "'where in Morton's day the sealing vessels moored up the channel, "'there came to settle years earlier two families from the West Country. "'They worked hard from dawn to dusk.' with little comfort and less financial success. Finally, after several years, the fishing improved, and one man began to prosper. By this time there was a small host of children, none of them big enough to help with the fishing, but most of them big enough to be going to school if there was one. Well, the day came when the prosperous man called aside one of the hired fishermen, and in his old country accent said, John, thee knows I can't neither write nor read. They can read. Now seems to me a sad, unchristian way for my boys to grow up without learning. Do thee stop ashore and teach our children, and I will pay thy wages as if thee went on the boat. And so he did, until a better teacher could be found, and John could go back to his fishing. In Cat Harbor, when Reverend Morton arrived, there was no school. They'd better get busy about it, he said, not quite understanding how much was involved in building a school there. So sixteen men, one from each house, decided they would get the timbers needed just as soon as they got their gear to rights after the fishing was over. They took two of the largest boats in the harbor and voyaged over sixty miles to get lumber to build their school. But bad weather came on. Strong headwinds blew continuously and stirred up a heavy sea around Cape Friels, so the little boats heavy laden couldn't make it. 
Three times they tried to sneak around the Cape and three times they were driven back. But finally, after an absence of 22 days, they reached home without enough timber. What a bitter disappointment, for now they had to wait another year before they would have time to repeat the arduous journey. Sure enough, same time next fall, the same men set out again, and this time got enough to finish their school. This was in 1856. I hope they behaved better in school than they did in church. The first minister in Greenspond complained that the rum bottle would pass around the upper gallery during the service, and once Morton's own sermon was interrupted by a local lady crying out, Oh, gracious girls, I forgot the loaf. Julia, go next door and hang on the bake pot, my dear. Morton travelled back and forth across his mission, and when at home in Greenspond came to dread the appearance of visitors from the outliers of his district, for they would always entreat me to go forthwith, or name a time for going on a voyage to their distant places, while my duties elsewhere were claiming my presence. Much of his travelling was done during the winter, when the backwoods were dotted with tilts, rude shelters where families hold up while father cut wood. They would choose a site for their home and cut all the timbers, save for two opposite trees spaced far enough to make room for one dwelling. A thin pole called a lunger stretched from one tree to the other to make the roof ridge, and the four walls were made of tree trunks set close together, a floor of lungers and the hearth a flat stone. A chimney space was an uncovered spot at one end of the roof and also served as a window. One end of the dwelling would be partitioned off with a punt sail, and that was home. Along would come the minister, dressed in coarse cloth trousers, a reefer jacket and a fur cap with earflops, Elsinores they were called, with a pair of blanket mitts and moccasins on his feet for easier travel on snowshoes. Thus was the reverend dressed when he headed home one night from Dead Man's Bay. He got as far as Seal Cove when he and his two companions broke through the deceitful ice. They pulled themselves out, but their outer clothes froze into a hard sheath. They were miserably cold, and as they went on, the ice became thinner. They couldn't go back, for it was too far, but ahead the ice bent under their weight, as with weakened knees they got down and crawled. To their horror, they soon came to open water between them and the shore. Not a thing moved on land, not even a dog to bark a warning of their approach, and shout as loud as they could, nobody appeared. Finally, one of them spotted a few floating pans of ice, jumped ashore from one to another, and brought back two boards. One he laid on the ice and crept across it, dragging the other board in his hand, and so the three of them managed to reach shore. When they reached the village, there wasn't a single change of clothing to be had. Nobody, but nobody, had an extra garment. All they had to feed the minister and his companions was bread without butter, tea without sugar, and a little molasses. Morton said they sat up before the fire all night in order to keep themselves warm, though they were sick with fatigue. Later, when he visited this house again, Morton was given good bread, butter and tea with sugar. He couldn't understand the improved circumstances until he learned that the woman of the house, knowing he was expected, set out to walk the four miles to the nearest neighbor to borrow food fit to set before the minister. So, if Morton had troubles, they were small compared to those faced by his parishioners. As the introduction to his little book states, his aim was to give his readers a plain, unvarnished account of facts, a humble and truthful picture of the difficulties and the encouragements of a devoted missionary. And this it does in spades. 
That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of Ella Manuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. In the next episode, Ella turns to James Lumsden, who came in the late 19th century to preach the virtues of Wesleyanism to northeastern Newfoundland.